Good morning. I am Sam Rubinson. I have the honor of teaching with Matt over at CIU, but I'm in the youth ministry department, and he is not. <laughs> and that's okay. Today's scripture is out of Exodus chapter 25, verses 1 through 9. College students, you're coming to my house. Do scripture and bring these as offerings. The Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You are to receive the offering for me from everyone whose hearts prompts them to give. These are the offerings you should receive. Gold, silver, bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, fine linen and goat's hair, ram skin dyed red, and other types of durable leather, Acadia wood, olive oil for light, and spices for anointing oil and fragrant incense, and onyx stones and other gems to be mounted on the ephod and the breastplate. Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all the furnishings exactly to the pattern that I will show you. Thank you, Sam. If you guys bring that stuff to lunch, that will be a memorable meal. Uh, indeed. Thank you for reading that. Um, as, uh, as you heard there, we're going to continue in our Exodus study in uh, chapter 25 and then uh, 26 and 27 uh, this morning. And this deals largely with instructions for building a, an ancient structure that was called the tabernacle. And so as I say that by way of introduction, I know I'm talking to two different kinds of people in this room. Uh, there are those among us who, when we purchase a new item, the first thing we do is open the box and look at the sacred instructions to see how to put it together. And there are those of us who laugh at such people and think, who needs instructions? <laughs> what in the world are those for except maybe, maybe to go back to hours later, if perhaps we still haven't figured out how to put it together. Uh, one thing I also know, uh, whether it's working on a recipe or some uh, piece of furniture you purchased from Ikea or some other thing, uh, your attention to detail in the instructions is often going to be tied to how important you consider the project in front of you to be. So uh, if there are two kinds of people in the world, I am probably, shockingly, more like the latter person uh, who likes to try to figure it out on my own. And then later, if I need it, go back and see uh, someone else's humble suggestions for my work. Um, but typically, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just go after it and see what I can figure out. But I, I know a time when I gave great, great attention to the detailed instructions I received uh, was the first time I installed a car seat in our car. So my wife was pregnant with Haddon, our oldest, our first, and I had barely ever touched a car seat, much less installed one in my car. And I remember reading the instructions. I remember watching YouTube videos. I remember talking to other parents as we were making long-range financial investments and things. Like, how do you guys do yours? And, you know, the clips and all this stuff. There was a place in town where you could go and get your installation of your car seat checked. And I happily drove over to see if I had properly installed my car seat and waited nervously while they inspected to see if I had done it correctly. And I remember standing there with such personal pride when she said, this is good. This is good. And I said, it's, it's good. It's OK. And she said, yeah. She said, most, most people don't put it in there that tight, but you've, <laughs> you've got it. 
And, and I just remember at that moment, I just thought, I'm going to be such a great dad. I've got this. I've got it. <laughs> if the rest of it is as easy as this, then I'm, my kids are in good, good hands. And so uh, that was one time, and, and it's probably the exception. That was one time when I paid a lot of attention to the instructions, but the reason was, was pretty obvious. What I was dealing with there was really important to me. You know, we were going to bring our baby boy home, and we were going to put him in this car seat, and we were going to drive on the road around all these maniacs that I suddenly viewed as people out to get him. And so uh, we wanted to make sure he was padded and, and strapped in and, and cared for and as safe as we could have him. And so I, I say all that because as we turn to the second half of Exodus this semester, uh, the first half of Exodus is probably the most, at least some of the most memorable, some of the most exciting events in the entire Old Testament. Uh, if you know anything about the Old Testament in your Bible, you know something about the plagues and the parting of the Red Sea and the conquering of Pharaoh's army. And, and then you go to the second half of Exodus and it's sort of like that Ikea catalog, or not the catalog, but the instructions uh, that you get with your furniture. It's, it basically tells us how to build something. And at first glance, it may not appear to be as exciting and as engaging as those plagues and the parting of the Red Sea were to us. But I think there is much, much we can learn here. And, and one of the things that becomes especially clear as you just look at the text itself is how important this thing is that they're going to build. I mean, as Moses was uh, writing Exodus and leaving this for the people to guide them in the future, he, he genuinely put as much time and energy and space into the building of the tabernacle as he did all that other stuff. And you even just think about it chronologically. I mean, there were 400 and something years encompassed in those first 15 chapters or so. We're talking about a span of a few weeks with the remaining 25 chapters of the book as they put together this structure. And so, among other things, that should alert us that this is an extremely, extremely important thing that they are putting together. And so God is going to invite Moses and Joshua, or he has invited them up onto Mount Sinai. It says that they're up there 40 days and 40 nights. And in that time, they receive these instructions uh, for how exactly to build the tabernacle. And so if it was important to God, if it was important enough to invite them up and spend 40 days explaining it to them, and if it was important enough for Moses to write all this down, and if, if it was important enough for the people to preserve this and pass it down through the centuries, then it seems like it might be important for us to at least know what it's about and understand it a bit more. So what we're going to look at today is how the tabernacle was constructed and just sort of the details of, of uh, what actually was contained within it. And I should point out on the front end that, that this idea of building a structure that, that God himself would dwell in, it, it didn't come out of nowhere for the people. I didn't really get into this at the end of last week, but at the end of chapter 24, you remember the last couple of weeks, if you've been with us and, and you've been reading through Exodus with us, uh, the people of God have been at the foot of Mount Sinai and God has been displaying his awesome power and holiness. The mountain has been trembling. Uh, it's been covered in clouds and fire. And among other things, they are to learn from that, that he is not a God to be trifled with. And then in the midst of that, he's given them the law to guide them forward. He has made these promises about their future to, to fuel them and, and what he has planned for them. But at the end of chapter 24, he actually invited some of them, some of their, their key leaders, up onto the mountain 
And you imagine that scene with smoke and fire and a trembling mountain. You can imagine what it was like to watch some of their leaders wander up there and, and, and think to themselves, will they ever return? What will happen to them there? And at the end of chapter 24, we're not going to look at it in detail, but basically Moses tells us the leaders got up there and they beheld God. They saw God. We don't know all that they saw. They only describe basically the, the uh, ground beneath his feet. Uh, that may indicate to us that his presence was so overwhelming that they dare not lift their eyes. We don't know. Uh, but, but perhaps the most miraculous thing in the whole encounter is not just that they saw God, but that they saw God and lived. Because all throughout the Old Testament, there are these warnings about man is, is too unholy and, and sinful to look upon God himself. And so there's this tension here. We talked about this a few weeks ago where this God, the God of Exodus, our God is so holy and so powerful and so mighty that he tells his own people, don't you dare come up this mountain. And yet he is also so kind and so tender and so merciful that he invites them up. He, he brings them into his presence. And at the end of 24, he, he actually serves them a meal. They actually eat together. And so there's this picture of fellowship with this fearful God and, and that's kind of the background to the text that Sam just read for us, where uh, God then begins to give to Moses kind of an overview of the instructions for how the tabernacle is to be put together. And oddly enough, he begins with explaining to the people the part they are going to play. And so I want to point out a few things we can note from that passage. And then we're going to talk a little bit more about the tabernacle itself and um, what, what was going on there with it. And so... The first thing you see there, as you look at the first couple of verses, I'm in Exodus 25, verse 2. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they take from me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you, will, you shall receive the contribution or the offering for me. And so the first thing we note there is that God expects his people to contribute. I mean, there, there are a number of ways that God could have brought about this structure and, and brought it into existence here. He is a creator. He could have just created it. He could have had it ready for them. He could have given them instructions to go find it. And this is where it is and what you get it and bring it with us. But instead, he goes to the people and he says, you guys are going to do this. We're going to use your stuff. I'm going to invite you to be a part of this. And I think it's a picture of, of how God tends to work. He tends to work through the contributions and the offerings of his people. Even in the New Testament, we are still continued, uh, we're, we're continually expected to fund the work of God through the giving of his people. And so in the New Testament, we're commanded to give to the poor, we're commanded to give to efforts of, of missions to advance the gospel throughout the world. We're commanded to fund the work of the church to support those who lead. And the, the idea in all of that is not that God is taxing his people. It's that he's, he's training them. He's, he's guarding them, in fact, from themselves. And he's, he's training them to view their possessions in a particular way. So they would think about money and finances and their stuff through a particular lens. And so he expects them to contribute. And then the second piece of that uh, passage there, and it, and it relates to the point I just made about the perspective God's trying to give his people, is 
He also supplies what he demands. And this is kind of fascinating to think about. If you, you read all that stuff that Sam read, all that stuff that you guys are going to bring to this lunch today. He said, you shall receive from them gold, silver, bronze, blue and purple yarns. Those would have been these, uh, these very uh, rare and precious fabrics, onyx stones, uh, these jewels, fragrant incense. And, and maybe as you're reading that, you, you had a thought where you go, wait a second, where did these people get all this stuff? I mean, let's, let's remember who they are. And let's remember they, they were slaves for 400 years, and then they fled Egypt in the cover of darkness in a hurry. Remember, there's, there's no time for the bread to rise. That's why we have the unleavened bread coming with us. They go late at night, and they go in a hurry. And you think, well, and now they're wandering around the desert, and they're making their way somewhere. But where do they get all this stuff that they're going to use to build this, this structure to be a dwelling place for God. And so when you look at the text, you realize God provided it. He had planned for that all along, all the way back in Exodus chapter 3. When he first appears to Moses, he says, I'm going to take you, I'm going to lead you to Pharaoh and my people, and you're going to get them out of Egypt. And he mentions that as they leave, they're going to ask the Egyptians for stuff, and the Egyptians are going to give it to them. <laughs> and Moses doesn't really pick up that detail. It always kind of fascinates me because to me, that's one of the hardest things to believe about the whole story. Like the, the plagues and the parting of the sea. But you've, been, you've become this torment to these people. And it tells us in Exodus 12 that the, the Egyptians are begging the Israelites to leave. And after the death of the firstborn, that 10th plague, they're begging them, please just go. Pharaoh is saying, go. Draw all this back and forth. Just go. And yet somehow... Exodus 12, verse 35 says, God gave them favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And so that when the people go to the Egyptians and ask for these things, they're like, here, just <laughs> take our gold, take our silver, take our precious yarn and all this stuff. And they just, they just have it and they just go. And so, so they're packing it all out. They're packing it in a hurry. And, and now in this moment, several weeks later, maybe a couple months later, they, they get a clear picture for exactly what all that stuff is for. They've been hauling it around all this time, and now God's going to explain to them exactly what it's there for. And I think part of what we're to get from that, I'm assuming none of you came here with gold and silver and goat's hair in your pocket and things like that, but part of what we're to get from this kind of thing in Scripture is to just see how God works. The, the things He demands from us, He actually provides to us first. Right? And so... When God tells us to be a giving and generous people, he's merely commanding things of us, of the things that he's already provided to us. He's, he has supplied what he will demand from us. When you, when you think about it in that way, it really transforms how you think about, for example, just your own finances. And instead of thinking through, you know, well, well, what, uh, how much of my money should I give to the church or to God in general, you step back and you go, no, I don't, what do I have that I haven't received from the hand of the Lord? And so maybe I should go to God and say, what did you give me this money for? What did you give me your money for? It's, it's like on a loan from you to me and I'm a steward over it for a temporary season and, and I can operate financially as if there are things in my life that you've supplied this for. Some, some purpose out here in the future. So, so give me wisdom and help me know how, how much do I give? Where do I invest this and how do I spend this? And how do I do it wisely 
in a way that's going to prepare me to to meet the things that you've prepared for me. And so here we see this idea that God is going to use the people and he's going to invite them to give back to him the very things that he has supplied to them. I think it's remarkable. And then the biggest thing we see here, of course, is there in verse 8, is we see God's desire to dwell among his people. So Uh, This entire project is the result of divine initiative. Before we start looking at all the details, it's important to remember God laid the blueprint for this. He gave them very specific instructions. He initiated the process. He provided the materials. He's going to equip the craftsmen to build it. And why is he doing all that? Verse 8 tells us, this is God speaking, let them make me a sanctuary. And this is why he's done all of that that I may dwell in your midst or in their midst. So there, in in the middle of this story about a building project, we hear the heart of God. He he wants to be among His people. This this broken, uh, disobedient, very flawed people. He wants to be right in the middle of them. And so... Before we think about what exactly is in the tabernacle and before we look at how to build all this stuff, I I think perhaps the most important thing that we could take from the tabernacle itself is is this reminder that we're talking about a God who wants to be near us. He has come to us. For the people of Israel, the tabernacle was their Emmanuel. It was their reminder that God is with us. It sat in the center of their camp wherever they went. It was this visual reminder that they were not abandoned. They were not forsaken, but God was with them. When you start thinking about that in terms of just daily life and walking past that daily for these people in these ancient camps, this tabernacle reminded them that that God was not some distant being that cared nothing about them, who was harshly ruling over them. But no, he was more like a, a groom who had pursued his bride. He was more like a father running after his wayward children. He was like a king who was willing to stoop and dwell among his subjects. But as they know well, he's a holy king. So he can't dwell just anywhere. He can't just be among them without any sort of regulation. So he gives them these instructions to build a sanctuary that is a holy place Uh, for him to dwell. They have to build a home fit for a king and a home fit for a holy king. And so God's going to reveal the uh, instructions for this to Moses and Joshua on the the mountain. It says in verse 9 that they followed the pattern. So there's this kind of heavenly blueprint that he unveils to them there. And then he comes down and he brings to them all the specific instructions of how to build this. And, and regardless of what kind of people were in Israel, if they were the kind of people that ignored instructions or viewed them like, like they were uh, uh, given from God on high, uh, here in this moment, they're dealing with something so significant that they rightly recognize we better pay attention. And, and so they're going to take all of these details that follow and they're going to put together exactly what God tells them to build. And that's what we'll see in the next few chapters as we look at it. And so I want to uh, just briefly talk about what the tabernacle contained and, and what's involved in it. And then I want to connect that back to what does that matter for us and why is it significant for 
us in particular. So as we're talking about the tabernacle, um, you've got basically this court around it. It would have been about 150 feet long, about 75 feet wide. It's about half a football field wide, uh, long, and about half of that wide. That would have had these curtains about seven and a half feet high, uh, like we've got over here on the side. And that would have basically just provided a fence around the whole area. And again, that's in the center of the camp. People can see that anywhere they look from their own homes. They can, they can see that. In, in the court, there was an altar where sacrifices were made. Uh, there was an, an oil for lamps, so there'd be this ever-burning light to remind them of the presence of God. And then there was the tabernacle on one side. It was about uh, 45 feet long, about 15 feet wide. Uh, maybe, I meant to bring a tape measure and kind of get a, a marker in here, but maybe something like these middle chairs. Something. I mean, we're not talking about a big structure at all. Uh, covered on all sides by curtains and basically divided into two areas. In the outer area, there are a few objects. There's a table. It's got some bread on it. Uh, that represents the tribes and, the, and them being in the presence of God. There's this lampstand that is, is really a menorah. You, you've seen from Hanukkah celebrations. It kind of represents the tree of life. Uh, we'll come back to that idea in a minute. And then there's this altar of incense where they burn incense offerings. But then within that, there's what they called the most holy place or the holy of holies. And it's this cube. It's 15 feet wide, 15 feet high, uh, 15 feet long. And that is, is where God himself is said is understood to dwell when he dwells among them. The, the, the cube itself is not God. It's not a representation of God. They're building a home for him. And, and so it's a very, very sacred place. It's not a place that people just wander into to visit. Uh, only one person goes in there and only once a year. And so it's a very important deal. And, and within uh, there, within this Holy of Holies, there's uh, the, the little box that they call the Ark of the Covenant. About three and a half feet long, a couple feet wide, about the size of a cooler. It's just a small wooden box, but it's overlaid with gold. And there are these two angels called cherubim on top. And, and they're to remind the people of a couple of other cherubim that stood in front of a garden called Eden. Uh, when Adam and Eve disobeyed God and were cast from the garden, these cherubim were placed at the entrance, guarding the presence of God so that sinful man could not come back into his presence. And here he is coming to them, coming near to them. So, so all of these things are going on. And we'll, we'll kind of come back to some of these objects in the weeks ahead as we talk about it. But that's, that's what we're talking about when we talk about the tabernacle. We've got this big court. We've got the tabernacle itself. And we've got the Holy of Holies. We've got the Ark of the Covenant that really symbolizes the, the presence and glory of God among the people. So I think the question we want to ask is, what's the purpose of all of this? I mean, what did it mean for them and what does it mean for us today? Well, it provided God a dwelling place among his people. I mean, that's, that was the purpose he gave for them. Uh, they're going to live in tents, so he is going to live in tents. And so uh, they're nomadic people. All of these objects are made to be portable. And you see the pictures of things where people have tried to reconstruct them. Uh, they all have rings on the side. So poles can be inserted and people can carry them from place to place because, again, these people are out in the wilderness and they're moving. And so th these things have to be accounted for. Uh, this whole structure, uh, it sat in the middle of the camp and it was certainly the middle of their religion. It, it reminded them of the presence of God. But the, the thing about it that's most important for you and I to recognize today is that it was ultimately a placeholder. 
It was not an end in and of itself. So when you think about what God is doing with the tabernacle, you have to kind of step back and think about the story of Scripture in terms of God's people in His presence. You go back to the Garden of Eden where God is walking in the garden with Adam and Eve. And then in their sin, they separate themselves from Him. And so they're cast from His presence. And as I mentioned, these two cherubim are placed at the gate to the garden to where they cannot enter again. So the tabernacle is this sort of restoration of Eden. You know, once again, God's people are invited into His presence. There's a means by which they can have access to Him. The whole thing's facing east, just like Eden itself. But the tabernacle, of course, was temporary. Right? The people wander around for some time. Eventually, they're going to settle in this land that God promised them. We talked about last week. Eventually, they'll have peace in that land. And under King Solomon, they'll build a temple. And that temple is basically a permanent tabernacle. It looks like all of this, only it's not tents and yarn. It's, it's a marble and stone. It's, it's a permanent structure. But of course, even the temple is a placeholder. It's a, a temporary thing. Uh, it, it, it created a category so that when Jesus Christ came and dwelt among us, we would, we would have a, a, a placeholder by which to recognize some of what he was doing. So in, in John's gospel, uh, John chapter 1 verse 14 says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And the word that is translated dwelt is the same word as tabernacle. So literally, Jesus came and tabernacled among us. So we're reading all this stuff about tabernacle instructions and tent and yarn and goat's hair and all this stuff going on back here in Exodus. It's so that someday Jesus Christ could come to this world, walk in this place, and that sentence would make sense. He tabernacled among us. He brought the presence of God to his people. The very next chapter, Jesus himself says to the people, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it. Nobody understands what he's talking about. And John says later, after the death and resurrection, we realize, oh, he was talking about his body. His body is the temple. So, so Jesus becomes the true tabernacle and the true temple. He's, he's the full restoration of Eden. So we, we had the garden, we have the tabernacle, we have the temple we have Jesus himself coming to fulfill the hope of these things. But then listen to what the New Testament says about us. This is where, it, for me, it gets really hard to, to wrap my mind around the significance of this. This is Ephesians 2. This tells us about how Christ has come and in Christ, now the dwelling place of God has taken up residence in you and I. So Ephesians 2 and verse 13 says, Now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So God has come near to you. He's brought you near. It says, So you're no longer strangers and aliens. And in verse uh, 19 beginning in 20, You're members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, so we've got another building project taking place here, being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So there's a new temple, but notice what he's saying is the temple. 
in him, in Christ, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So what's going on in Ephesians 2? It's picking up the exact same language from Exodus 25 and saying all this stuff that you read about in Exodus 25, all the things the people did, all the cuts they made, all the, all the building and constructing and preparing and moving so that God could dwell among his people in this ancient land, all of those shadows have come to a reality in his church. We are now the temple. We are now the place where God himself is setting up residence. It says we are being built into a holy temple, a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. His dwelling place on earth. How others will observe him and see him now is by viewing his people. There's no longer a tent to go visit. There's no longer a temple to walk to. But there is a people, and we are the dwelling place of God on earth. Now, as an aside, does it matter how we, as God's people, do things today? Well, there are 37 verses on, in here on how to make a curtain. Do you think God cares about the details? Yeah. He cared about the details then when it was a temporary placeholder for an ancient people in a forgotten land. Do you think he cares about the details now in our lives when his glory is attached to how you and I live out this life together in the church before the world? So he's obviously concerned about the details and he obviously has been planning this for some time. This, this kind of uh, recapturing of Eden is still in process and it's actually being experienced, believe it or not, as you do something like get up on Sunday morning and drive across town and sit in this room and be around these people. We together are experiencing that the presence of God in a fuller way as a community than, than we would individually. Because God is building us into a holy temple, his, his dwelling place on earth. But even that is temporary. Even this is short-term. Even this is a placeholder. Is the scripture tells us in Revelation 21, in the future, as, as John is looking ahead there in this vision, he says, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from heaven, uh, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now here's that language again, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. That's where this is all headed. It's back to Eden. It's back to the garden. It's back to paradise. When we walked with our creator in peaceful fellowship. Man broke that long ago, but God in His grace has been rebuilding a path back to that moment. And in His promise, He says, that day will come. And so in the meantime, we taste it. We taste the preview as, as we experience life together in community.
So as we look at this tabernacle, we're going to look a little bit more at some of the details of this in the coming weeks. We're going to see about how they built it. And we're going to see how uh, they obeyed the Lord and they were putting this thing together and, and it served its purpose in that day. But I think for us to really understand it and appreciate it, we have to constantly remind ourselves of where it was headed. It was a temporary placeholder to, to set forth before God's people exactly who he is and how he was intending to relate to them. And I think one of the big takeaways for us this morning as you think about that is just that reminder that all of this initiated in the heart of God himself. So I don't know what you're going through this morning. I don't know what kind of burdens you're bringing into this room and, and what kind of hurts you may be experiencing right now. But I hope you would hear and in some way see as you think about this ancient structure with all this curtain and gold and silver and all this different stuff that you would somehow see that there is a God who wants to come near to you and walk with you through whatever it is you're facing. That he is committed to you. And it's not this random, I pray and I hope he answers kind of thing. But no, he has been, since the beginning of history, he has been restoring his relationship with mankind through this ultimate and eternal plan to send his son to die on the cross, to, to pay for our sin, to be risen from the grave, to grant us new life so that you and I can become an experience, who we can become the dwelling place of God and experience his presence in full. He cares about the details of our lives and he wants us to live each day in his presence. So we're going to take communion now and I'm going to pray for us before we go to the communion table. And I just want to pray as we're thinking through these realities I want to pray that we would be a people that live in the presence of God. I don't, I don't talk about this time, but like I, I grew up in a home where God was a super nice guy. Um, he, he was really helpful when we needed him. But I also was, it was just sort of embedded in me that um, we could just kind of go visit him when we wanted. But then he kind of left us on our own to live life. You know, and so we, we came to see him on Sunday and then we went off to do our lives. And, and you know, he was, he was like this distant relative, you know, nice guy, ton of fun, you know, lots of gifts and things like that. But, uh, you know, just go visit him on Sunday, stay out of trouble, and then you go do your thing. You know, it was kind of what was communicated to me, at least what I, what I was feeling as a, as a kid growing up. So when I read stuff like this and I read about all these details and think about all this stuff, I'm just, I'm blown, away, I'm blown away by this picture of a God who is relentlessly pursuing his people and who would be absolutely not content to be on the back burner of your life and some forgotten relative that you visit when you feel like it. But he wants to be at the center of your life. He wants to be in the middle of all you're facing and he, he wants you to experience joy in his presence no matter what you are going through. And so as, as we go to communion this morning, I, I want to invite you to reflect on those truths and, and really ask yourself, am I, am I living out each day in his presence or have I perhaps allowed him and my relationship with him to kind of recede to the background and, and other things in life take over more attention. So when we take communion, we're reminding ourselves of, of that death and burial and resurrection of Christ. Um, we, we say this every week, but if you're with us this morning and, and you're trusting in those 
promises and, and you're placing your faith in Jesus, so you would consider yourself a Christian, then, then we want to invite you to take communion with us. There's bread and juice and we'll, we'll do it on our own in just a moment after I pray. Uh, if you're with us and, and you wouldn't consider yourself a believer, if, if you're maybe processing through these things, but you're just not really sure where you stand with God, it wouldn't be appropriate for you to take communion. Uh, we just invite you to stay seated. Uh, maybe use this time to pray. Maybe use this time to ask God to help you understand what it would look like to live life in his presence and have a greater sense of his presence in your own life. Uh, and we'd love to talk to you more about that. So I'm going to pray and then we'll take communion together. Lord, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for uh, your word and we thank you that you have given us instructions. Lord, help us not to ignore them. Uh, help us not to look past them or consider them uh, insignificant. Lord, Thank you for coming to dwell among your people. Thank you that what you did in uh, this uh, ancient people, in this distant land, uh, is uh, small and minuscule compared to what you offer to us in our day. As we get to experience the presence of Christ, as we get to experience his grace and mercy, as we get to be built together into a holy temple to be a dwelling place for you by your spirit. Lord, I pray that we would as a people live out those realities with joy. And I pray um, no matter what we're going through as individuals here, no matter what we face as a church, I pray that we would be a people committed to walking in your presence and committed to living out each day in view of who you are and what you have done and, and what you call us to be. And we pray it would be to your glory.